And this morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 24, and it's verses 33 through 53. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Last week uh, at Easter, we consider the question, is it possible that tomorrow can be better than today? And it's the question about possibility. There are no guarantees about what the future holds, and there could always be difficult times ahead. But when we don't have the possibility in mind, we don't have hope, and without hope, it's hard to move forward. On Easter, the resurrection of Jesus creates a new possibility. It's exceedingly hopeful and it's transformative and so what we find as we get to the end of Luke's gospel and we're just going to look at that today is that when Jesus comes up from the grave there, there's a direction shift from from death to life so all of us our lives are moving towards death but with the resurrection there's a paradigm shift of moving towards life uh, or, or the beginning of life. And what we find is that Luke chooses to end his gospel, not simply with Jesus having been raised, but, but what began with his coming up continues with his 
going even further. And so we could talk about the humiliation of Jesus in his suffering and death. But when we talk about the exaltation of Jesus, the, the resurrection is so powerful, so profound, that that's rightly a focal, key focal point in the church. But having come out of the grave, Luke tells us that after 40 days of teaching and discipleship, he then ascends into heaven. And Luke, who writes this gospel, also writes the book of Acts, uh, known uh, as the Acts of the Apostles, where then uh, the, the book begins with Jesus again ascending into heaven. And so last week, considering the resurrection today, just wanted to reflect a little bit more about this new trajectory that something has happened that's paradigm shifting. Uh, the claim of the Bible is it's history shifting, world changing. Jesus having been raised starts a new beginning. All things are not, made yet new, uh, are not yet made new. He will one day return for that final renewal of all things. Uh, but there's a new possibility, a new trajectory, the possibility of life. And, and it's meant to continue uh, to grow. And so we find in verse 36, Jesus appears to his disciples. They had heard that he had been raised, but they're still surprised, fearful, overwhelmed by his presence. In verse 36, it says, as they were talking about these things, the fact that they heard he had been raised, Jesus stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. And that greeting, that those first words that he speaks, the announcement of peace, is getting at some major biblical themes about enmity and brokenness and a world gone astray and trouble and suffering and all sorts of issues to Jesus who comes to be the one who heals. And so you see the signs of it in his miracles. The miracles are not just bare displays of power to show his superiority, but to show the nature of the work of God to give eyesight to the blind and to cast out the demon and to, um, to announce the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that what we find is that Jesus in his ministry, the, the very unique things God can do are, are being done in the signs of how his arrival marks a reversal. Uh, but then in his own resurrection, it's even more profound uh, that death is no longer um, this mysterious thing that is uh, veiled over us as it has the ultimate power uh, over us. And so he announces peace. And what we find then is in his ascending into heaven, in his exaltation, in his being glorified, he then gives the tasks of the church to announce God's peace, to invite people to it, to live with God's peace, and to live out of this new paradigm. Now, it doesn't mean life will be easy, that everything will go perfectly well. It doesn't mean that the world has now been reordered properly. Uh, but it means that there's a people being called to live within this world by faith, under this new paradigm, a very hopeful paradigm. And so what I want to talk about today are three areas that we see uh, in this passage where things that shouldn't be separated out, things that shouldn't be broken apart, things that shouldn't be divided are being restored. And what I have in view is the relationship between body and spirit, between God and humanity, and between heaven and earth. And so I'm going to talk about those three areas that that Jesus' resurrection appearance and then his ascension indicates that, that those relationships are, being, are beginning to be restored. And so I'm going to begin with the spirit and body. You know, this alone is, is a huge topic and a hard one for us to understand because 
our embodied existence and our identity. It's, it's a lot to make sense of. And the kinds of questions that come up today, who, who am I? Uh, the, the questions of identity, how do I know who the, the real me is? Is the real me the, the me I project on social media? So it's not embodied, it's, but that's really me. That's the me that I want people to know about. Or in questions that come up today about sex, is sex in, is male and female in our genes, our genetics? Is it embodied? Or is the real me something different? We're having trouble uh, making connections between who I am, the, the conscious individual, and our embodied existence. And, and um, one of the places that we can see that we have the most trouble understanding this is in how we conceive of death. What is death? Death itself is so mysterious to us. Um, but one of the, the reasons it's so mysterious is because of this difficulty of, of conceiving of who I am and what it means to be embodied. And so uh, here are two generalizations in terms of how death is conceived of maybe more the humanistic or philosophical and then maybe the more religious. Uh, what I'm describing is the humanistic or philosophical or maybe a scientific approach uh, based on observation is death is a ceasing to, to live and therefore it's kind of the end of existence. You just are no longer alive and you decompose and then you sort of vanish. You are no more. Now, that could be an, uh, a troubling thing for some people to think about. What is it like for me not to exist? But it actually could be appealing in some ways to people, especially if you have fear of, of, of the concept of judgment, for example. Um, so for some people that's very fearful or the concept of suffering. Um, it actually shows something odd about our world that, that non-existence is something that some people are okay with because the idea is, well, if I cease to exist, then I'm not worried about it, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not experiencing anything, and therefore there's something that says, that indicates uh, something's not right with life if, um, if not existing feels like a bit of a relief or something that we're completely okay with. But for some, for some that's the case. Um, there's other positive ways of trying to make sense of the fact that maybe we just die and that's it. There's no more existence. We talk about living on in people's memories. Uh, we talk about uh, making a mark in the world. Uh, we talk about um, the body decomposing and becoming sort of a, a fertilizing aspect of the earth that then is part of the cycle of renewal that then you make your way into whatever next living thing is there. And so we have different ways of trying to create a sense of meaning or connection but if we live and then die and then that's it, it is, it is hard to, to imagine what meaning there is in the current challenges of life or why push hard against what's wrong in the world or why believe in certain intangible things like love. Uh, for example, if, if we're just biological and then we, we disappear, um, it's, it's hard to make sense of some of the things that we value as human beings. And so a lot of people turn to sort of the religious answers. Now, again, here's a generalization about religions tend to think that there is some personal self that continues on. There is an, uh, an eternal or at least something that exists after death. And so uh, this view uh, the, uh, typically sees death as an escape from embodied existence into spiritual existence. And some see that as a good thing, that the problem is fundamentally the body and it's good to be free of the body and the material world. Others conceive of things differently. Um, but, but often there's a disembodied reality where you're either absorbed into some grand energy force 
or you exist as one who sort of floats in the clouds and has, has a, an, uh, a, an existence of another kind of dimension, uh, or perhaps there's a, a rematerializing through something like incarnation. And so that's helpful if you find yourself wanting to be nice to your cat saying, well, it's not just that we should be kind to living beings, but that for all we know could be Aunt Gladys. We got the cat, you know, sort of the week after Aunt Gladys coincidentally died. And so maybe in case that's her, let's be nice. And so that's some sort of embodied physical existence where, where humans remain. People have different conceptions of what happens. But the Christian conception is distinct from, from either of those generalized views in that Jesus appears after his death, so his death was not the end of him, but he appears with a body where he's seen and invites them to touch him. And his disciples who had heard him talk about these things, his disciples who uh, likely would have had some belief in resurrection, that was not a brand new concept in Jesus' teaching uh, for first century Jews. Uh, there was some dispute, but many first century Jews believed that there would be a resurrection, but they saw it as a global thing at the end of time, not necessarily that one individual in real time would be raised. And so the disciples are trying to make sense of what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. Um, and here in verse 39, Jesus says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. So this is, it's Jesus. It's, it's not somebody else. It's not a replacement. This is I myself. So that distinct person still exists. He could be seen. So they heard about his being raised. Now they're seeing it, but they still have trouble making sense of it. This is something that for all of the teaching that they had, they, they weren't expecting to be standing in front of this person who was clearly crucified, died, placed in a tomb. So he, said, he goes on in verse 39, touch me and see. <laughs> so let's engage more senses because of this dissonance that's happening. You're seeing, uh, but your mind can't put together what you're experiencing. And so let's engage more of yourself. He says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so they assume he's a spirit. That's verse 37. Jesus appears to them, peace be with you. Okay, what are we seeing? If this is really the Jesus we've been following, the category that they had is this must be a spirit. They saw, thought that they saw a spirit. They're startled, they're frightened. And Jesus says, no, I have flesh and bones. Um, and so in verses 41 to 43, an interesting note that he sits and eats with them. Something presumably, however we conceive of, of a ghost, would not do to engage the physical material world to, uh, to be able to ingest it. And so there is Jesus um, alive bodily in their presence. And so in verse 41, I think a, a perhaps a good description of the nature of the Christian life, they still disbelieved for joy. So they're having trouble re reckoning with this. You could not believe in cynicism and say, this is uh, a myth. It's, it's too good to be true, or it rubs me the wrong way. Or you could say, I can't make sense of this. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I have lots of questions, but there's something quite hopeful about this possibility. And it's that trajectory, that hopeful trajectory that the disciples go down, uh, and then they find themselves with greater understanding. 
You know, there are all sorts of people who do research about things like hallucinations, for example, and there was a, a study done in the UK uh, where, where their theory about hallucination, they say, here, here's it was from an interview with somebody who ran a study, it says, we use what we already know about the world in order to generate an unambiguous perception of the world. So the idea is that a hallucination relies more on prior knowledge than on actual sensory information coming into the brain. So you have the category of the dead do not rise, we saw Jesus dead, uh, and therefore this makes no sense. What I'm seeing doesn't make sense. And of course, um, what happened was utterly unique, Jesus appearing after the dead. And so uh, his sitting and eating with them, his inviting them to touch him, makes clear that this was not psychological duress, that they were not uh, stressed out, that they weren't caught up. You know, sometimes you hear a noise and somebody thinks they see something. Jesus sat and ate with them. This is presented to us uh, in a very different way that Jesus was in a body. And so you know, let me just note a couple of quick implications for a resurrected Jesus. The idea that Christianity doesn't present a spirit that needs to escape from the world, um, but, a, but a united living body that God has breathed his breath into, uh, where we have a personal individual identity. Um, one thing is that, simply that, Christianity is not a, an escape from the material world. So Jesus has lots of warnings about not loving the world, about not being materialistic. Um, but sometimes we think that we're supposed to live this um, distracted or dismissive life as though we can't enjoy the world or shouldn't devote our things to things like the field of medicine, to healing diseases. Why does it matter? Because disease affects the body, not the soul. Well, that's not a Christian view. A Christian view recognizes we inhabit a material world, and therefore we engage that world. Um, another implication, though, about Jesus' resurrection, embodied life can be hard. Some of us don't like our bodies. Some of us, our bodies don't work as they should. Or so much of what we experience that's difficult in this world, we experience bodily, meaning pain that we want to get rid of, or cravings, desires that we have that we feel guilt about. So much of it feels so embodied that the idea of saying, one day I'm going to escape from the body, sounds like relief. But the gospel offers something more promising, that there will be a renewed, a healed body. That, it, that it's not that your life on earth doesn't matter, it's just a passing thing until you can escape the body, but actually there will be a resurrection. And the kinds of things we see Jesus doing with the various ways people suffer in the body, temptation and sin, or a disability, or whatever it is, um, the promise is actually that we all, uh, if our hope is in Christ, will experience the resurrection, that we will have a distinct identity in renewed bodies, bodies that function, bodies that are not overwhelmed by um, pain or, or racked with cravings that, that we hate. And so it's actually quite a hopeful possibility for our future. Uh, and then here's just the last thing that I'll point out on this is it is remarkable to think of the nature of the incarnation. So at Christmas time, Christians believe that when Jesus was born, it wasn't um, the start of his existence, but but Jesus who pre-existed coming into the earth. Now that's quite a claim, that's a lot to take in, but I'm just gonna assert that that's what the, the church typically believes. But assuming you buy that, give thought to this implication of Jesus in a resurrected body. 
When we think of Jesus' incarnation, it's clear there was a mission component. Jesus came to the earth to accomplish something, to do something uh, sent by God on behalf of humanity. And his death would mark the end of that to a certain degree in that he came to accomplish salvation. He dies for the forgiveness of sins. And then it's appropriate that he returns from where he came. But the interesting thing is he doesn't die and then the spirit leaves the body, but in the body he returns. And, and the interesting thing here is if you think about other areas where, you know, examples where somebody has a mission like in a spy movie or perhaps like a real spy if, if the movies are at all accurate, um, somebody takes on a different identity. They go to a different place. They put on a wig. They have a passport with a different name. Uh, they maybe speak with an accent or whatever it is that, that they take on a different identity to accomplish a, a certain goal. And then when they're done with the mission, they return presumably to their family where they go back to being who they were. And so it's easy to think, well, that was the nature of Jesus' mission. He came to the earth to accomplish the forgiveness of sins, and having done that, he returned. Um, the ascension here is not that the spirit leaves the body, but Jesus appears bodily, says, look, listen to me as I speak, touch me, um, watch me eat. And then it says, in their presence, he is taken up before them. Uh, Jesus coming to unite himself to us so that we would have union with God is remarkably profound where Philippians 2 says he humbled himself taking the form of a servant. Um, he didn't do that just to accomplish something and then go back to his life. He did that eternally. That Jesus who took to himself a human body was raised with the renewed resurrection body and then ascends into heaven where he remains bodily uh, forever. This connection between God and humanity, it's, you know, how's that for something that we don't have understanding? Ex explain that. What's the nature of that? And that's where there's this disbelieving for joy. The nature of the Christian life is God, uh, what God has done on our behalf is so remarkable that just when we think we have a grasp on it, there's a sense in which we say, God is doing something so much more profound that I still don't understand it. But it's his joining with us uh, so that the implication of what I'm talking about now is that our body and souls can be together. Uh, that's the promise of a renewed self uh, that's healed. So that's the first air place that we could highlight from this passage that, that we have the hope of a future peace, um, the embodied soul. Here's a second area uh, that Jesus makes a connection where there's brokenness, where there's division. It's between God and humanity. And so the fundamental problem in the Bible from the very beginning is that humanity turns from God, not fully understanding what they're doing. If God is the giver and sustainer of life, if God is the one who provides all that is good, if God is generous, kind, and wise, to turn from God to turn from his generosity, to turn from his life-giving power is a terrible mistake. So that division between God and humanity um, results in human beings dying. That's what happens when we stray from God. That's the picture of Genesis 3 in the beginning of the Bible. And because of this division between uh, humanity and God, uh, if we were made to know God, to walk with God, the inability to to know God, to understand God, leaves us tremendously confused. 
So one obvious area would be confusion about God. What is God like? Is there a God? Does God exist with that division? That's confusing. But if God is the source of life, if God is the one who wisely made everything, uh, then to not know God, the Bible says, is to, to not know ourselves, to not understand our world, and is to live in this world with fundamental misunderstandings that lead to many frustrations of various kinds. And so one of the things that Jesus does between the time that he's raised and the time that he ascends is he has a teaching ministry for 40 days between what would be Easter Sunday and Ascension Thursday, 40 days later. Uh, and in that, verse 44 says, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So Jesus had been teaching them plainly and clearly, but they were not understanding things because the resurrection creates a new possibility. So, so they were hearing his teaching and they were getting what he was talking about and they were growing and they were changing, but, but they weren't fully getting it. So Jesus says here, this is, this is what I spoke to you while I was with you. Verse 45, then he opened their minds. So here's a new understanding. Now they're gonna see differently. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So one thing that he's doing is, because you haven't understood the fulfillment, the plan of God, you didn't uh, have the categories to imagine exactly what God would do, you've read the Bible wrong. <laughs> and therefore you don't recognize me, you don't recognize the work of God, you have various misunderstandings. Now that Jesus has been raised, they're ready to be reoriented. Let's go back to what I've been teaching. Let's, let's go back to the ways that I've been explaining the scriptures and talking about the plan of God that he announced and how I would fulfill it. And now you will understand things in a new way. And many of you have seen movies like Sixth Sense or Psycho or Usual Suspects or, or any of those stories where there's an ending that then makes you go back and say, wait a second, I was following the thread wrong. And then you go back and you see either that you missed things that are significant that you didn't know were significant or something happens that you understand in a different way. Uh, that seems to be something like what's happening here. Jesus has been raised. Now that you see me alive from the dead before you, let me go back and, and give another walk through what I've been teaching you. And in verses 46 to 47, uh, this is a, a summary. It's not all that there is to say, but it is a summary of what the scriptures are about, according to Jesus, who is going to be our teacher. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You know, when we read the Bible, uh, a lot of it is really hard to make sense of. Whatever our preconceived notion coming to it, if we think that it's a list of rules or commands or an instruction book for life, there's lots of it that you're going to wonder, am I supposed to have multiple spouses? Am I supposed to invade the neighbors and destroy them all? What do you do with these various parts of the Bible? Is, is this a rule book? Is this the instruction manual? Or if you think of it just as, as mythic fairy tales, you won't realize that Jesus says, unless you do these things, you won't have life. Um, Jesus is saying it's, it's a story about humanity having turned from God, but God more committed to us than we are to him, who would himself fulfill things by sending this Christ, this anointed one, who would suffer and rise. He would be humiliated and he would be glorified. And through what God would do there, 
forgiveness being offered makes repentance possible. Now, the Greek word for repentance can literally be translated as a change of mind. So it's not just an intellectual thing, but keep in mind, here they, have a, they are misunderstanding things, and he says, now, repentance will be proclaimed to all nations. In other words, people are going to be instructed about God and his ways and invited to return. And that's fundamentally what repentance is about, is, is this new understanding of God, his plans, his purposes, his goodness, what he promises, and grasping the goodness of it and therefore turning to God. And it's through the forgiveness that God makes possible that allows repentance to be something we can do. And the word repent, uh, some of us have negative con connotations about it. It sounds judgy. Uh, you've done wrong, you need to repent. Um, but in the context of the Bible, wrongdoing is inherently harmful. It would be a misunderstanding to do things that are problematic and continue in them. So the call is to return, uh, to turn from what you're doing and turn towards God. And so Thomas Watson puts it this way, repentance is a grace of God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So the understanding is it's, it's a grace. Uh, that God cares enough that he, he pursues us and he invites us to return and makes it possible so that we could return. And the realization that we've been wrong, there's something humbling about that, uh, but that humility is something that restores us and then brings a, about a changed life, an outer transformation. And so um, the, the, the mission here is that what begins in Jerusalem is now to go to all nations. God has made it possible so that everyone on the face of the earth is called to return. Uh, this is God's plan from the beginning, from the time of Abraham, where Abraham is told, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That the invitation is to be broad and to be generous. That the church then has the mission of going out and saying, here's what the scriptures teach. Here's what God has instructed us. Um, he invites you to return to him. You're not meant to live apart from God. Um, you're not meant to die. You're not meant to have your spirit separated from your body. You're not meant to be suffering and miserable. Uh, you're meant to thrive. You're meant to live. And therefore, Jesus being raised says, before I ascend, here's your mission. Go and invite the nations uh, to repent, to turn towards God. And so there's that restoration. I had heard a story in a sermon about a guy whose car was stolen and he contacted the police, and there was this big campaign to try to get a message out to the, to the car thief. And so there was a radio campaign and some other things. And so, you know, raises these questions. Was this guy really important that, that when his car gets stolen, it gets all that attention? Or was the car particularly valuable? Or was the thief particularly notorious? Why this big production? Um, why this big effort in this particular case? Well, as the story goes, uh, the guy who owned the car had a rodent problem, and so he had some crackers with rat poison on his passenger seat. The concern was that the car thief might eat the crackers. And so the car thief's mindset is, I want to avoid getting caught and being punished. But in this particular case, the police and the pursuit was to try to rescue him from a, a danger that he was not even aware of. And so much of, of our misunderstanding about the, the division between God and humanity is to think God's going to come after us so he could humiliate us. 
God is going to come after us so he could judge and punish us. And this is the Christian gospel. God sends Jesus to come after us, and he's humiliated. God sends Jesus to come after us, and he's put under judgment and suffers punishment. And the purpose of this is because God's desire is to restore what's been broken because of our own foolishness, our own stubbornness, our own fear that keeps us from wisely returning to God, the giver of life, and having life in him. And so what we're told is that the resurrected Jesus, having suffered all these things, he receives even more glory than any of us because of his faithfulness, his integrity, his love, his, um, his fulfillment of the scriptures. But understand God's purpose in sending him and God's purpose in sending the church back into the world to invite all the nations, be restored to God, um, that you would have life in him. And so that restoration, God and humanity, body and soul, uh, here's the, la the last category of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, he teaches that there's a restoration between the brokenness between heaven and earth. Heaven, uh, the, the place where God inhabits, uh, the realm of, of God where in the, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2, there seems to be this overlap between God and his presence in the Garden of Eden and uh, the relational connection, but it seems to be there also in terms of um, how it was in heaven was how it was done on earth, that they were given a task to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. There was a sense in which they were to take all of the goodness and all of the potential and all of the possibility and cause it to multiply. And when they turned from God, it went the opposite direction. Um, in verse 51, it says that Jesus parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And so he leaves the earth. So, I mean, that's one of these things. If Jesus was eternally raised, if he had not ascended, presumably we could find him somewhere. However we conceive of that, whether he, we imagine he'd be sitting in a cave somewhere or on a mountaintop that we can go and visit, or whether he would be the kind of person that you can stop by and make an appointment with in his office. Um, the reason that we don't do that is because Jesus ascended into heaven. So there's this uniting with us bodily and in that body ascending into heaven so that heaven and earth would now come together in a particular way. So he, he parts from them and is carried up into heaven. So Jesus' story is he comes down to take on a body that he suffers and then is raised in the body. Uh, but now the story is he's raised and ascends into heaven so that he would, in verse 49, pour out the spirit. So he comes down to earth to suffer on our behalf and is raised. Now he ascends into heaven in order to pour the spirit out. What he describes in verse 49 as the promise of God. So God promised that he would dwell among his people. That's the covenant promise throughout the Bible. Jesus has made it possible. What he did allows for forgiveness, for reconciliation. And now the embodied and alive Jesus ascends into heaven and he pours the spirit out to then create this new connection that's a reversal of the world in its disorder. And so when, when we think about the ascension of Jesus, you know, um, going by, by Jesus' explanation of, of what the scriptures are about, the message of the church is rightly focused on the death and the resurrection. Through his death, uh, forgiveness is possible. He suffers on our behalf. Through his resurrection, life is now possible and given to us. We don't talk a lot about the ascension. It's there in the Apostles' Creed. 
You know, on the third day he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will come again from there to judge the living and the dead. We don't talk a lot about it because it doesn't seem as practical. But read through the New Testament and you will find that Jesus, having been raised, is exalted even more, that it's, it's like a coronation, like a king going to take his rightful place because he's so honorable, he's so upright, he's so uniquely good, unlike any other in humanity. He fulfills the scriptures in a unique way. You read through the Bible and you find all sorts of areas where, where his ascension into heaven uh, has implications for us. So in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am going, um, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. So his going ahead is to, to make a place where we will be with him where he is. So his ascension into heaven creates this connection that our resurrected bodies will be in the presence of God. You take Ephesians, and read through the whole book if you like, but in Ephesians 1, uh, it talks about all authority on heaven and the earth now being under him. So that creates this paradigm for us, whatever power and authority we have, now we exercise it in imitation of Christ under his leadership. And those who in this world do not exercise their power and authority justly, we know are accountable to him who is over all. And so Ephesians 1 encourages us to do on earth as would be done on heaven, whether or not it works, whether or not those are the rules of the game, but to live a different existence because now uh, we who by faith are united with Christ have a new possibility here. So then Ephesians goes on and in chapter four, it says when he ascended, he gave gifts. And so the ascension of Jesus is to pour out the spirit to equip us for ministry. So, so therefore he gifts us variously. And so if you're a Christian and part of the church, you have purpose, you have things to do that are good. That's an implication of his taking the throne and, and pouring out his spirit. The book of Hebrews talks about his going into the heavenly realms as, as a forerunner to say he goes first so that we would follow him. And so there's a sense in which this world and all of its dissatisfactions will be made new, that one day the, there will be a new heavens and earth, they will be united, and his going into the heavenly realms has implications for those of us who are joined with him. Romans chapter eight, um, Jesus takes the seat at the right hand of God and therefore there's a ministry of intercession in the present on our behalf. We have Jesus who didn't simply pray for us when we were here, but Jesus who um, advocates for those who are his. In our failings, in our mistakes, in our discouragement, we have the ear of God through Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. And so there are all these implications to say if Jesus has been raised and if he ascended and if he's taken his rightful place of honor, there's a lot in that that is very hopeful, that talks about a different kind of future that then creates the possibility for a different present. And so when Jesus tells us to pray, he says, pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're not meant to be two separate realms with two separate sets of rules, but now we live uh, as citizens of the kingdom. <clears throat> those who believe in Christ, those who have joined our life to him, those who have his life at work in us, we now uh, look to him and say, I will behave in this world according to those ways. Um, and so it gives us a, a new way of life, new possibility. Uh, and what we're told from this passage is there's great blessing in that. Now, where Jesus is essential in this, uh, he's the one that, we, that he comes so that we could see, we could touch, we could 
join with him and he goes into the heavenly realms that's hard for us to even fathom. What is, what is that like? <laughs> um, well, the reason that, that Jesus has been sent is to, to make it possible for us to have that connection to God, uh, have that connection to um, the heavenly realms. And so as an example, um, I've never been a big bowler. You know, when I was younger, I would go bowling, the sport where you roll the ball into pins. But some years ago, uh, our family decided to go bowling. Not like riding a bike in that I, you know, had to yell duck before I rolled the ball. I'm, you know, not very good at, at bowling. And so one of the things that I realized, the skill that I needed to figure out is I don't know where to look. And so you have those alarming shoes. And so I know, don't look down. Bowling shoes, not sure who who designed that fashion innovation. But there you've got your bowling shoes. And, but then there's a line, a line that says, you have to go up to that to, to roll your ball, but don't cross the line. So you're supposed to look at the line. Well, you, you want to look at it so you don't cross it, but then where's the ball going to go? So the obvious thing to me is you need to look at the bowling pins. But the bowling pins are just far enough away that connecting what I'm seeing with my unskilled arm uh, what I'm looking at and where the ball goes is not as connected when I bowl as it should be. So I had to look it up, and what I found, the standard tip for the beginning bowler, is there are these seven arrows, maybe 15 feet from that line. They're close enough, and they set a trajectory, and if you look there instead of the pins, so you don't look down, and you don't look all the way ahead, but you look there, then uh, there are various techniques to make sure that orients you uh, to where you want to go. And so, so the two options we tend to have is heaven is this otherworldly reality, sounds like a fantasy, and so just look down. Let's make the most of life on this earth as we can. But we're told uh, that's just not, you know, we have this line that we're not supposed to cross. Uh, it winds up being about rules, about manipulation, these various things. Well, that's not it. And so let's imagine some heavenly realm that winds up being a fantasy that we can't access. What is God like? What is, it, what is the afterlife like? And then it winds up being escapist. Um, Jesus has been sent into the world, and he says, now follow me. Look at me, and you will be reoriented properly. I'm the one who fulfilled all things. I'm the one who's going to teach and disciple you. And I'm the one who's going to bring life back to you, as long as you keep looking at me. And that will orient you that as we're following Jesus, he's going to make it so that we land where we need to go. And so the last thing Jesus does, when he, the first thing he says when he greets his disciples is, peace be with you. The last thing he does before he leaves them is he blesses them. That's verse 50. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. I think it's significant. What is the nature of Jesus Christ? When he left, he wasn't abandoning us. He wasn't saying, I played my part, now it's up to you. Or look what I earned, I'm going to go and enjoy it. See you later, suckers. He announces his blessing. I'm not leaving you. <laughs> I'm going to prepare a place. I am, I am not going to remain in Jerusalem so that the nations hear about me, but I'm going to go to the heavenly realms and pour out my spirit so that I could be with the nations wherever they are. And so that blessing that was meant to go out, if you're following the Bible from the beginning where, where there's a curse that involves suffering and sweat and enmity and death, Jesus comes and he bears the curse so that he can have a blessing that he gives to his people. So he blesses us, and in blessing us, he departs, so that what began through his resurrection 
uh, would be a work that changes the trajectory of what will be true of us in our lives. And so in verse 53, Luke ends his gospel with a changed human experience. They were continually in the temple blessing God. That restored relationship, um, now that God is no longer out there in heaven, uh, somebody that we need to impress, somebody that we need to fear will destroy or punish us. But now that God is drawn near, now that heaven and earth are, are no longer meant to be separated, nor is God in humanity, now that, that I can see that I have a place in God's plan, I'm not just going to one day uh, serve God and then disappear or be absorbed into some divine energy, but God's purpose is to bless me through raising me up and giving me new life. Um, it changed the disciples that it produced joy in them. That was a response. They worship God, they bless God because they've understood God's blessing. And that is the paradigm of the Christian life, that we understand what God gives to us, God's purpose from the very beginning, to bless. And he does that by removing the curse. And he does it in a costly way. And when we realize his grace for us and the hope of what he promised and is determined to give us, then that changes our orientation towards the world, towards God. It gives us a different focus, so we become a people who bless God, but then live on earth in order to advance God's blessing, to invite people to receive his blessing, but also, as Jesus tells us, to bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. First Peter, don't revile those who revile you, but, but be a person who has received the blessing of God and then live in this world to, um, to live out of that, to return thanks to God, um, to walk with God, and to hope that something of your connection with God will be restorative in where you go and what you do. And so that's a much more hopeful way to live. It's not a guarantee that life will go easy, that everything will work, that we're gonna believe it all the time, that it's always gonna make sense, but it's a promise that the life that Christ has, he has joined with us, and by faith, um, we can have God's blessing, and there will be um, the increasing peace as things are restored. And so uh, look to him that will change how you understand, how you live, uh, and what you can do with the life God has given you. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, I'm sure all of us here have some questions. Maybe some of us are utterly confused, utterly cynical. Um, Lord, help us to experience your blessing. We pray that there would be an opening of our eyes, that there would be instruction by your spirit, that you would impress the truth upon us so that we would see and understand rightly and that our lives would be changed and transformed by it. And so, Lord, we long to have the fullness of your blessing. And in the meantime, we are assembled today to bless and to worship you, to give thanks for what you promise. But we pray as we go today, we would do so um, more in tune with that life-giving goodness, that genuine hope that it would really sustain us for whatever we'll face this week, that we would live differently, that we would, uh, in turning to you, uh, live lives that are, are significantly different, fruitful, good, hopeful, uh, encouraged. Help us with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.